our agency finally has enough cash on hand that we are now looking at investing some of our resources. What should be included in a good policy for small nonprofit investing? That's a great question. First of all, congratulations on getting to the point where you've you've started to get in to you can ask this question with a straight face, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of organizations, like you see these baby organizations and like, we need an investment policy. Like probably not yet. <laughs> it's like, hold your horses. <laughs> so this is, this is one of those things where there are, there are people that are willing to give you this service for free. This is the kind of thing that you probably don't need to pay for. You don't need to design something yourself. You can get, you can get exactly this from somebody for free. Um, so we'll put a link in the show notes to at least one source that I think is a pretty good source. Um, I think in general though, um, ra- before you jump on the policy bandwagon and try to put something in writing that says, this is what we're going to do. I think you need to have just sort of a freewheeling conversation with the people that are in the organization that are knowledgeable about this world. And I'm guessing if you're if you're if you've got enough money that you're talking about investing it, you probably have a finance committee. I'm guessing that that finance committee probably has a few people on it that actually have investments and are doing investing kinds of things, and they will have some opinions. So have conversations with them, and then just kind of I mean you could just sort of brainstorm and write down like like in their opinion, what's the smartest thing for the organization to do with their cash? Like get a sense of like, if it were their money and this is the, this is where it gets hard. If it were their money, what would they do? Like, do they, is it important to have somebody that's counseling them on what kinds of things? Or are they going to be super risk averse and say, we want to do only the things that are going to guarantee that we don't lose any money, which is probably the direction that they're going to go. Right. And, and get all those, get all those sort of ideas down on paper and see if you can come up with a consensus of like, this is how we feel as an organization. This is what we think we should invest our money in. This is the kinds of products that we want to buy to invest our money. Um, and then that's going to give you a big head start when you finally get to the, the stage of putting a policy together, because now you've got everybody's ideas already and you can put it into a formal document that says, here's what we're going to do. And the kinds of things that are going to be in that document are like, are we okay with hedge funds? Are we okay with private equity? Or are we just rolling CDs and just kind of, you know, or roll it like right now, you can legitimately roll treasuries and not be in a terrible position, right? Just because of the way the economy is, the way things are happening right now. That's a, that's a, that's a possibility. Um, Depending on how much money you have, I mean, you've got, there are some requirements, some federal requirements about how you're going to treat it. If, for example, this money is going to be considered an endowment, if someone has told you that this is permanently restricted, and if you can avoid it, try to avoid it. But if it's going to be permanently restricted, then there are some federal rules, and it's up MIFA is the name of the the, the federal rules that you need to comply with. Um, it's basically the short version is like prudent management of funds that are going to be invested. That's like what that means. And the federal government basically says, don't do crazy things. <laughs> it's, it's really straight. It's actually pretty straightforward. It's like, you just have to like, not like, don't go full Sam Bankman freed Ponzi scheme with it. Right. That's not a good idea. <laughs> and you just have to say, okay, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, so 
make sure that you've got that in place as well. But really that conversation is where you should start. And once you've got that conversation in place, then you can start reaching out to folks that would do that investment kind of thing for you. And they would be delighted to share what they've put together as a a policy. Um, And then be careful that you're reading the policy. And then the, the hardest part in this whole situation, honestly, isn't the creation of the policy. It's getting investment management companies and the salespeople that work for those companies to comply with the policy. Because a lot of times you can put a policy together and they go, yeah, 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 we'll totally do that. And then they bring the reports back and they're not in the format that you told them it was supposed to be in. And they've invested it in crazy nonsense that you were not agreeing to to begin with, right? So that's where the difficulty comes is getting people to comply with the policy. The development of the policy itself is not the hard part in this case. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Hey, Andy. I uh, have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. It's Friday afternoon. It is. What are you doing this weekend? Yeah, like nothing interesting, nothing that anyone wants to hear about. That's for sure. Well, well, give us a peek behind the curtain of Andy's world this weekend. Mm, two years ago, um, we had some some people. We got some really nice trees in our backyard. So we have the arborists come out, and like as the arborists are leaving, they've put everything to this big wood chipper, right? And they're like, "Hey, do you want some mulch? We've got mulch." I'm like oh yeah, I'd love some mulch. That'd be great because you mix it into the beds and then the stuff grows really well. Yeah. They dumped like infinity cubic feet of mulch in our front yard. It was like piles and piles and piles. It was, and so it's just out there like in like (laughs) just in the street. And so I had to like go buy a wheelbarrow because I didn't own a wheelbarrow and like load all this stuff. And so and then just piled it along the side of the house in the backyard. And it's an, it's a hilarious amount of mulch. And so this weekend, one of the things I'm going to do, because it's kind of nice, is to try to get that massive pile of mulch a little bit whittled down by moving stuff into the beds and getting the house a little the backyard, not looking like I live on a farm, which I don't. <laughs> so that's the fun thing I'm doing this weekend. Wow. You're moving mulch. Like, oh, I'm my goodness. I'm moving mulch. Because I said, yeah, Yeah. I'd like some mulch. I need, and so what I learned from this is I need to be very specific. I would like a very small pile of mulch, please. (laughs) Like, (laughs) if you could give me like, I don't know, four cubic yards of mulch, maybe Uh, two cubic yards of mulch, I could deal with that. I cannot deal with an entire street length, six feet deep of mulch. Oh man, you know what? It's communications where it's at, right? It is. is. It is. I needed the contract. I needed the contract. We needed a written agreement about this mulch before I said yes. (laughs) And they're like, we got to get rid of the mulch, right? (laughs) They're like, look at this sucker. We don't have to go to the wherever they're taking it. We're just going to dump it all in his front yard. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, hey, uh, if you ever heard mulch talked about on a podcast before, 
it's not. This is the first time and we are going to, you know, give ourselves a gold star for having a random topic just to kick off this podcast. Uh, welcome to Nonprofit Everything. That was my fabulous co-host, Andy Shirt, speaking about his mulch stories. And uh, I don't have anything nearly as exciting, but if you ever <laughs> want to know about Euchre, talk to me about Euchre. I actually don't know much at all about Euchre. I like to watch people play Euchre while I eat and drink and just, you know, uh, but, but yeah. And, and Andy, what you're making a face. Okay. So I'm watching Andy on zoom right now. And as I'm saying Euchre, he's making a face. What is that? No, no, actually face? something just landed on my face. It was probably a fly from mulch. Oh, so it wasn't about Euchre. You weren't <laughs> well, judging my Euchre. Euchre. Okay. It was like, I actually like something was in my eye. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'm really glad to know. So, wow, you've gotten a whole behind the scenes. So again, thank you for joining us for another episode. We, couldn't do this without you and your questions. So keep the questions rolling. You know how to reach us in a million different ways, nonprofiteverything.com. You can submit a question. You can find us on social media. You can track us down. I think Andy has said pigeon carrier before, but I'm not right, sure pigeons, that sir. seems. Yeah, I don't know. We do have pigeons, so find the right pigeon. But we appreciate you and we appreciate you following us. We appreciate you listening. And please, like, in addition to your questions, share. Like, we... We want to just continue to expand this across the country, across the world. We've got some listeners uh, that are outside of the U.S., which is so exciting to us. And we've got several throughout the U.S. And it's just, it, it's exciting to be a part of this with you and on this journey. We've done this almost five years, if you can believe it. And we wouldn't be doing this without you. So thanks to you. Keep the questions coming. Keep the referrals and sharing this, you know, moving forward. What do you two think? Is there any benefit to getting an advanced degree in nonprofit management? I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. And I, I come with default thinking on education because I, I am a forever student. So I love like knowledge and learning and just for the sake of that. And so if you're just you just like to learn things or learn what is being, you know, formally uh, taught and, and kind of put together. If you are that kind of student, then yeah, if you want to have a job, uh, your, you know, position yourself for maybe more advanced level jobs that require an advanced degree, then sure. Uh, you know, I don't think that hurts. If you're looking for more pay, sometimes you can leverage that. So I don't ever think it's a bad idea. I guess I just really think getting clear on what you're trying to accomplish with it, because I also think it depends a lot on like what market you're in, what some markets don't care as much about advanced degrees, and you're not going to get the benefit probably of, of getting a job you know, just because you have this advanced degree or you're not going to necessarily get more pay just because you have this advanced degree. So I think you just got to get really clear on wh what are you trying to do with it. And I'm also a huge believer, as much as I nerd out about being a student, I also think you learn the most when you do, right? Like that's one of the things I think I've learned in my adult life is just doing and failing and flubbing up like in 
inaction, like, and I don't know if there's any book that could teach me that or any classroom setting that could teach me that. It's just sort of like you sometimes have to do it. So, um, so I guess I just would go back to asking you, what is it you're trying to achieve? Andy, do you think differently about this? Because you and I sometimes have, you know, I feel like you and I sometimes approach these things differently. So I'm super curious to know your thoughts. So I'll ask it this way. Stacy, do you have an advanced degree in nonprofit management? Nope. No. Why don't you ask me that? <laughs> Is that what you do you? Do you have an I advanced do. degree? I, do you? Okay. I do. Okay. I actually do. So <laughs> so I think I mean you're right. It depends on what you're trying to get out of it. I think that's an important an important thing to take into consideration. I think it's really hard to provide a blanket yes or no answer on this. Um because the you need to look at the not only like what you want to get out of it, but what program you're thinking of. Because I think the the you need to spend a lot of time looking at exactly what the curriculum is at the place that you're going to get that degree and determine whether or not that's something you need, something you think is gonna be better for you. So if you're one of the reasons I would absolutely recommend looking at an advanced degree in, in nonprofit management is if you're looking at a career change, you are currently doing, you know, something you don't like and you're like, I think I want to go into the nonprofit world, but I don't know a ton about it. There's a couple of ways you can attack that. You can just take an entry level job someplace and learn as you go, or you can spend some time in a university setting doing exactly what Stacy just said, which is figuring it out with the assistance of people who have thought deeply about what you, what kinds of things you need to know to do your job. Well, um, I, you know, there are some fantastic programs around the country. You know, I got a shout out to Indiana university, which has one of the best programs when it comes to like actually thinking deeply about the nonprofit sector mm -hmm. and how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you get a fantastic education. If you pick a, a program that's, that's got some credibility. I, I don't know that, you know, just if you're not going to move and you live where you live and you're just going to go to whatever the local college is and like take whatever classes they're there, maybe my answer would be different because they may not have a specialty there. Um, I, my opinion, too, as if you've listened to the podcast for any period of time at all, there, there's not that many things that are totally special about the nonprofit sector. A lot of things we talk about don't, don't have anything to do with nonprofits at all. It has to do with organizational behavior and how to do financial stuff and just understanding how to work with people and talking to talking to people from a sales context, which is what we do in the development side of it. Um, so none of those things are specific to the nonprofit sector, but then there are things that are specific to the nonprofit sector. Because for example, if you take two organizations, we've said this too, if you take two organizations of the exact same size, uh, a for-profit and nonprofit, say their annual budget's a million dollars, for-profit's not doing a strategic plan, a five-year strategic plan and doing a really detailed budget and keeping track of all of the, how they're spending their money in each individual programs. And I mean, it's way more complicated. It is absolutely business on hard mode. So understanding how to do a strategic plan by taking a class on like, what's the purpose of a strategic plan might be a really, really cool thing. Um, talking to people about the sort of the ins and outs of of raising money from a more intellectual side of it rather than just let's do it side of it could be really, really useful for you as well. So I think it depends, just like Stacey said, it depends on your scenario and what you want to get out of it. 
I think it really also depends on what's available to you, what's what what curriculum and what programs are available to you, because it's not going to be it's not an obvious yes or no answer. It's super depends. It's you know, like it'll be the shortest answer ever is the answer is maybe. <laughs> I think the, the other thing, I guess I would because we don't have a lot of answers, right? Like we don't know what this person's trying to achieve. We don't know if they're moving into the nonprofit sector for a first time role. I'm, I think we really also need to take a step back. If you're already in the nonprofit sector, and again, it's what you're trying to achieve, but I think there's some huge value. And I, I'd love your thoughts on this too, Andy. Like, I think there's huge value in actually getting beyond the nonprofit sector, trying to find a complementary, like I know so many nonprofit executive directors who have gotten a, you know, a degree in marketing or a degree in like an MBA, like as an advanced degree. And they have said that the MBA actually really helped them think differently about nonprofits. And so you've gone through that program, Andy, so I'm sure it depends on the program. But I also think sometimes taking, you know, things that may not feel quite as applicable, but seeing the transferability and learning lessons from that type of thinking and curriculum can be incredibly beneficial to actually carrying that with you into the nonprofit sector in, in a way that's unique from peers. So that's that's also something that comes to mind for me. I'm wondering if that's even, if you think that's even fair, Andy, given, you know, and I guess it depends on the program and the the, the weight, but, but is it fair to say that perhaps taking a different approach and getting an advanced degree in something else could actually be more beneficial? Uh, and, and again, it, you know, going full circle, it probably comes back to how much technical detail you're looking for versus like big picture sort of concepts or things you can use to run an effective organization or lead an effective organization. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, I, I do think just a general general business degree does ground you in a lot of, I mean, of course, it's been a long time since I got mine, right? But But you get to learn about statistics and how statistics work. You get to learn about basic finance, how basic finance works. And that's not something that you're going to pick up. Just, I mean, nobody's just going to like, I want to learn about statistics today. <laughs> like you almost have to be forced to do it yeah. in a classroom setting. Yeah, you do. Um, but, but I mean, I, I do think those kinds of things are useful. I mean, I, I, you'd be shocked. I was uh, one of my years ago, I was working for a nonprofit and they decided to, they wanted to do a survey and they were going to ask people some questions and so they designed the survey and it was like the worst thing ever. It was all leading questions and open-ended stuff where you're never going to get any actual data that you can use. It's just like, it was like, if you're going to bother somebody enough to ask them questions, at least make the survey like a, a legitimate instrument where you can, you can get information from it once it's been completed and not just like an exercise in asking people random questions. And I pushed back and, and you know, everybody was just like, nope, this is what we're going to do. I'm like, oh, well, it's going to be terrible and you can't rely on the data you get from it. But, you know, don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you asked my opinion, I told it was crap. And so you're going to go on with it anyway. So sometimes it can be a detriment, right? You know more than you should. And the organization's like, we're just going to plow ahead with this stupid idea. And you end up just shaking your head going like, well, why don't ever listen to me? Why doesn't anybody ever listen to me? <laughs> so maybe it could be bad, you know, if you don't like feeling... Um, 
frustrated and superior all the time, maybe that's not for you. Has anyone ever written a grant with another community partner where you received the funds, but the partner's actions were so egregious that your org wanted to pull the partnership? How did you explain this to the funder and how did you move forward? Ugh, nobody wants to be in this situation. This is awful. All right. I know I have to answer the questions that were asked, and yet I can't help myself but to say, this is why, like, having all of this figured out before you enter into that partnership is so important. And I know we've touched on this in different ways over the years, Andy, but like having an agreement, I've seen them called like collaboration agreements, like where, where you outline everything from here's what we do when we can't agree. Here's what we do. Like, here's what each of our roles are, right? Like, here's what we do to uphold. Here's what we're going to do. Like, here's our process. If we get into place where either one of our parties are like not doing what we should or doing something egregious, whatever that means, right? Like, I just, so gosh, like, I so much want to like rewind for this organization or this person writing this and say, like, I'm assuming none of that's in place or else this wouldn't be coming up, right? This question. So I guess, uh, knowing that we've, we've given the cautionary tale to those listeners, but you're in it now. So what do you do? I mean, I do think some really, I think it needs to start with some pretty difficult, candid, tough conversations with the, with the community partner, right? Like, here's what's going on here. Like, here's how we're, this is what we, we don't like see to be happening or whatever, like outlining your, your grievances and then saying, and and so we, we wanted to come to you before we go to the funder to see if we can figure out or make this work. So, right. Like you start there, if that doesn't, and you document it, like then I would like, I would probably go back and, and write just an email, hey, or a memo or whatever, like, here's what we agreed to, and here's what we're going to do moving forward. And then it's almost like what you would do with, you know, an employee that you're not going to just fire them right away. So I think you kind of go through this process of a couple of different times you have to do this. In the meantime, I do think you don't want to blindside the funder. If I'm a funder, and all of a sudden I find out, like, your organization is like, like it is at a point of no return. I'm going to be frustrated that you didn't bring me in sooner. So I also think having, I think trying to solve it yourself first, but if that doesn't seem to be working, bringing in the funder to sort of share, listen, we're not here to, we're about trying to get you the outcomes that we promised and that we're, we wanted to deliver to you. And, and we're really stuck because this is what's happening have you had this happen with any of your other partners? What did they do? Are there, is there any counselor advice? Because at this point, we don't know if we can even fulfill what we've agreed to. Are, can we do some problem solving together? And, you know, that could go a variety of different ways. I mean, ultimately, the worst case scenario is you have to, you know, probably take it. It's it's probably, a it rises to a board level discussion. And if you have to sort of cease that partnership and that may even be re, you know, giving the grant funds back to the funder or figuring out how you work that out is the worst case scenario. I I would hope that maybe between direct conversations with the partner, direct conversations with the funder and problem coming at this from a problem solving standpoint is, is what could help. So I just, oh, it makes me cringe and go, oh, it could have been avoided, right? Like that's the part. It could have been avoided. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, it's a, I totally agree with you. And we've talked about this before too, is there's this reluctance a lot of times to create contracts that there's something about, and I blame attorneys, I'll blame attorneys all day long because they make them so overcomplicated. They add in like crazy absurd indemnification clauses that nobody could possibly comply with and nobody understands. They make them just like they go on for pages and pages like they're written by the, you know, they're paid by the word, which I'm sure they probably are. But you don't necessarily need something that over the top, but having something in writing that says, here's the scenario. These are my responsibilities. These are your responsibilities and making sure that everybody's just clear on it. Uh, this I think is, would have avoided this completely. Um, well, may not have avoided it. It sounds like, and then then my other question is like on this, I really want to know what the deal is with this one. I want to know all the details because like the partner's actions were so egregious. Like, like what, (laughs) like what were they doing? (laughs) I want to know all the, the nasty details of this one. Cause it sounds really, um, exciting. So I, but I also think it depends on who the funder is too. So my assumption with this one is that it's a private funder because yeah. if this was uh if this was a oh, I mean, true. Although, yeah if it was a federal grant like you're never going to get away with no. winning a federal grant with yeah. a, a a partial agreement um so it feels like this is a private funder because it's a private funder um I think I'd be even less um I'd have less uh, I would be more likely to just go directly to the funder and say it's not working just because it is a private funder to, because, you know, if you go to the government with that, you know, you know, this, you know, it's, it's going to just turn into just this big, nasty, hairy thing that you're going to not deal with. But like, if it's a private funder, you can just be like, look, you give us this money. Like we're going to have a hard time doing what you need us to do. And here's why. Right. And, and just be really, really clear about it. I don't know that. I mean, maybe you'd give the other organization the benefit of the doubt to bring them in, but it feels like this is a scenario where it's probably just best to make sure you're, you're making sure that the, the that you don't take the fall for someone who's doing a terrible job because you don't ever want to do that and make sure the funder knows who the problem is because because you're not going to you may not I'm assuming in the scenario that you've gone to the other organization and said hey pick it up like we can't do this what's going on um, they may respond better to the funder saying that to them than they will to you saying that. Because you're not giving them anything. The funder is a potential source of future revenue. So there may be a scenario in which the funder says, I, I hear that, <laughs> right? And then maybe it gets fixed. <laughs> and then you know never to ever, ever work with this organization again. But they might, they might, get, um, they might get more, more traction with the bad org than you would. I think that's good advice. And I think it goes back to if the funder was in the loop enough, right, to know what each party's roles were or whatever, I mean, the funder could could have some of those candid conversations or just, you know, in, in general, respond to both your organizations about, you know, their concerns, and then you kind of deal with it from there. I mean, I think one of the reasons, because my initial instinct, I I assume the same thing you did. Like when I read it, I actually was like, I think this feels like a private funder thing, but maybe not. And so to your point, Andy needs to be handled differently if not. But from private funder standpoint, what I was trying to avoid was the idea of if you haven't had a couple of steps or co- tough conversations, and then you, and you, if you haven't done that and you go straight to the funder, like I would be livid if I were your partner agency because I'd be like, why, like, 
what, like, right? Like that feels really crappy and like nobody wants that, right? So like, yeah. why did you, you know, go go tell on me, scold on me without working it out with me? Or maybe I didn't realize my team has fallen short and it has nothing, like I wasn't even in the loop as the leader of that organization, whatever. Like there's a million ways it could could happen. But to the point, yeah, get this all set up in the beginning. I had, I came across not too long ago. It's, I think it's a foundation, if I recall out of Canada, that actually that they have on their website. So it's open, it's, it's open to anybody, um, sort of a collaborative kind of agreement and less about the details of it, but more like, here's the things you should think about including in those. So I will try to pull that out and give, make sure we can put that link in our show notes, because I think sometimes organizations don't know where to start on some of this. It's like, oh, what are all the things we need to think about? And that's, that's kind of a good, a good starting place. Do you have any advice on how to develop messages that will stick with various audiences, particularly when delivered in person? So I'm very curious if the person who wrote this has read the book uh, by Chip and Dan Heath, Made to Stick, Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die. It's a really cool book. And I know a lot of nonprofit uh, professionals, particularly those in charge of or responsible for marketing and communications and uh, just messaging in general uh, have found that valuable. So if you don't have that book, make sure you just kind of maybe put it on your list of of a good read. So I'm just two things that come to mind without overthinking this uh, too much. I, I mean, it's with where you're delivering the message, right? If you're delivering it verbally or in person somewhere, I think the mistake that I see people make often is that they spend like the first, I don't know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, kind of just making this small talk or, uh, you know, just kind of whatever, making a joke. They're trying to build rapport. Uh, and I so so I understand why that's done. And the challenge is, is that sometimes that works depending on that in-person audience and sometimes it doesn't. But it's taking away the time you have to deliver your message. So I guess that's where I where I want to encourage people to really think about if you're going to do something like that to just build rapport with the audience that you're speaking to, then make it super quick and then get down to business because you don't have all day and people's attention spans are short, right? So if you're going to use some of your valuable time to, you know, to spend too much time, whether it's, you know, thanking people, I mean, God, that's one of the worst, like the cardinal sin, right? Let me go up here and spend a minute. Like it's, galas are notorious for it. Let me get up when, you know, I've been asked to speak about the organization and first start by saying, we couldn't be here today without all of our funders and sponsors and then go on and list them. And a minute later, you've lost people, right? They're up at the bar, open bar, getting their drink. They're like, yeah, whatever. Like you didn't capture them. So I think you you miss a huge opportunity uh, when doing this stuff in person of not capturing the attention right away. And so you can even capture the attention and then find a way to incorporate the thank yous at another point or to incorporate the sort of joke or whatever at another point, but grab their attention, right? Share, you know, share that stat, share that quote, share a question that just 
brings them in with you enough that you've captured their attention. So now you can share your message. So that is one thing. And if I do want to say this, because I guess galas are on my mind, because there's several that are coming up in, you know, with spring right around the corner. And I do think that I would love for people to just coach those who run galas and develop remarks for galas and and make sure that the person who's really up there to develop the message that's going to kind of make people want to give more, make people excited about what you're doing, that person should not be the same person as the thank you person if you can help it, right? Try to keep that separate because everyone knows the thank yous are obligatory and you've got to for whatever you told your sponsors or your funders that are supporting the event, what, how you would give them, you know, a, a mention or in the program or on the screen. And, and, you know, that's the other thing. Do you even have to mention their names or can there just be like a rotating banner or slideshow that just has their logos? Because I just think the thank yous really uh, can get carried away and it, it's important to say thank you. And there's ways to do it other than taking up valuable sort of messaging time. So I'd say that. And then I go back to stories, right? Like you see so many times when people get up in front of a group and particularly if they're trying to share something about their organization or the impact it makes, they, uh, they start by like listing their accomplishments. It feels like we're, we're reading a book report, or like listening to a book report, like when oh, we did this and we did that, and we impacted this number of people and we did that. And nobody wants to hear that. Like, I, it, it doesn't tell me anything, right? It doesn't move me. It doesn't, it doesn't make me think harder about the issue that you're trying and the important mission that you're trying to solve for and you're trying to further. So I would just say anchor some of that, you know, anchor Anchor your remarks and your messages in how you show it and not tell it, right? Like, so it's, it's, it's about showing, getting people, like having them create the picture in their mind. And, and that goes back to storytelling, right? And, and in that book, they talk a lot about that, right? They talk about the importance of, of showing and using stories that, that, can do that for you in a way that is going to be so much more effective than that long list of accomplishments, than that long list of data. And uh, especially when you're talking about something that's in person, un unlike like a funding proposal where you may need to have some more of that data. But like for in person, I'm trying to connect and make a human connection with you. So the best way for me to do that is, is to share kind of that story. And then I would like piggyback off of that and if you do, if you absolutely are required to do the pleasantries of the thank yous after you've shared the story, you ask a couple compelling questions like, what if this was you? What would you do? Where would you turn to, right? And thank thankfully, because of this list of sponsors, we are able to answer those questions for the very people we serve, right? And so then you bring it in, but it's after you've gotten the key stuff out that you needed to stick in people's minds to compel them to action. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Stacy and I appreciate that you've listened to this. We like that when it pops up on your feed, you go, oh, I want to hear that. Like, and you click it, or, or maybe you don't. Maybe you like, actually, there's something wrong with the stereo in your car and it just plays these automatically and you can't control it. 
So if that's the case, um, I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, give me a call and maybe I'll help you read through your the manual on your stereo um, and we'll we'll fix that. So send us the, if you have any questions about how to fix the stereo in your car so that this podcast will stop. You would do stop, that. You would yeah, do that. Let me know. Have you ever done that before? <laughs> have you ever read <laughs> through your actual car problems? manual? Oh yeah. yeah, all the time. How oh, do you really? know how much air to put in your tires, Stacey? Oh, I have the <laughs> I have the people I pay to do that. <laughs> that sounds awful. I'm sorry for that privilege. That sounded awful. <laughs> no, no, I do. I do. Usually to figure out why that light is on and how do I turn it off. That's the, that's what I want to know from the manual. Like, why is that like that? I don't think that's good. <laughs> <laughs> 